Uh, Nehemiah 4 is where we are going to be this morning. And like I mentioned earlier, today is the 504th anniversary, I thought about it, I remembered, of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door of Castle Wittenberg back in 1517. And this is an important moment, because this moment has been uh, documented as the starting point of the Protestant Reformation, and we see it, uh, a lot of people view today, not so much as Halloween, but as Reformation Day. So if you've heard me preach before, you know that I love uh, the, the Reformation, I love that time period, I'm glad I didn't live during it because I need my air conditioning, um, but I love uh, the Reformation. So when we were down in the CLC, I talked about uh, Luther at the Diet of Worms at the do- in the Doctrine of Scripture alone, and so I love the Reformation. I've jokingly have said that if I had my way with naming Benji, he would be Calvin Luther Bassett, <laughs> but I didn't get my way. So here we are with Benji, and doesn't really roll off as good as uh, Benjamin Bassett does anyway. Um, you see, the Protestant Reformation is crucial in the history of the church. It kick-started a return to sound doctrine. It returned the church back to looking at the authority of Christ in his word. And the reason that I love the spirit of the Reformation is because I feel like that spirit that they had guiding them is what we need in the church today. And so one of the Latin phrases that is often used to be a uh, catchphrase of the Reformation is sola reform, or semper reformanda, and this means always reforming. You see, we as the church, we do not change the doctrines of Scripture. We don't change the truth, but we do fight for the truth. Now is not the time for us as the church to become passive. Now is the time we strap ourselves for war with the devil and his kingdom. You see, what the Reformation was, it was an all-out assault on the kingdom of darkness. It was an all-out assault on the the standards of the world because it pointed the hearts of man back to the kingdom of God. You see, the reason we need Reformation is because the doctrines of truth are being attacked on all sides. The doctrine of Scripture is always being attacked, and this should not surprise us because this is what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, "...for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching." But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see, uh, I think we see this a lot today. We see this with the prosperity gospel. We see this with critical race theory. We see this with the woke church. And even if you go back even further to liberation theology, we see this uh, desire to alter truth And when you alter the gospel, you're left with no gospel at all. But Paul, he's already warning us 2,000 years ago, hey, the time is coming. And he's saying pretty much, hey, it's already here, that this is the reality of the world that we live in. You see, back in Spurgeon's day, he pleaded that the church would be filled with men like Luther and Bunyan and Knox and Whitfield and Calvin, all these great people, because these were men whose very names brought terror to the ears of their foes. These were the people where if you heard, like here's the thing, Benjamin Franklin was not a Christian, but he was in awe of George Whitfield in the way that he presented the gospel. That is what we need in the world today. We need people whose very names, not necessarily them, but the God that they represent strikes fear into the hearts of man. I, see, I, I think in Nehemiah 4, which we're going to look at, we see what we are to do. We're to stand united in the truth. We're to stand with the gospel of truth in one hand as the sword and a trowel in the other. 
And so I'm going to go ahead and dive into these verses. We're going to go through all of chapter 4. So strap yourselves in because it's going, to be, going to be a, it's going to be a morning. We'll go with that. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. See, I probably shouldn't have to mention this to you because you've already noticed that there is a hostility towards God's work and towards his people. This isn't anything new in the world. This has been man's mindset from the time of the fall. Man is naturally against God. And so what we see in these verses is the hostility towards the work of God Almighty. The world stands against the ongoing labor of God's people, and they will continue to stand against that work that we are called to as followers of Christ. See, what's heartbreaking in many ways is that the anger and jealousy that sinful man has towards the Lord, towards his work, towards his people, they do not keep it to themselves. Like, they go out and they openly belittle the work of God and his people. That's what verse 3 is talking about. Tobiah, he says that if a fox was to go up to the wall, the wall is so crumbly and awful that it would just fall down. Now, y'all probably seen foxes. They're like that big. They probably weigh like 12 pounds or something. That's, not, that's, that's open belittlement. I've never picked up a fox. You probably know that by now. Nothing quite strikes fear in the hearts of God's people like adamant verbal abuse. And so how often do we falter in doing the work of God because all we are hearing is the world telling us that we shouldn't? All we hear is that this is destined to fail. Why bother? Why do we stand for holiness when there's so much eager acceptance of sin? Why do we fight for sanctity of marriage when marriage doesn't seem to mean anything anymore? Why do we stand as the church for the life of the unborn when it seems like law after law is being written to eliminate the life of the unborn? Why do we send missionaries to these deep, dark countries only to have them cut down and martyrdom? Why is it that we continue to hold to a faith that everyone else says is pointless? The reason is, is we hold fast to our confession of faith because our goal is not to please the hearts of man, but to please our commanding officer. That's what we are here for to do. The belittlement of God's people is not something that is only present at the time, in, in the Old Testament. It's not just something that's present in the modern world. Peter warns about what is to come back in 2 Peter 3. He says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And that sounds bleak, but Peter does not leave his people without hope. Look at verse 8. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Not long after the resurrection of Christ, people were already belittling the people of God for the hope that they had, and this is because we stood with our Heavenly Father. Look at what they're saying. They're saying, hey, where is he? 
Where's this Christ you keep saying is coming back? It's been, what, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. Where is he at? He's not coming. What are y'all hoping for? The world's going on as normal. But if you know the history of the church, does this belittlement that Peter talks about, does that slow the church down? It doesn't. Because within 300 years, what becomes the dominant religion of the Roman Empire? It's Christianity. We do not balk at the resentment of those that stand against our Father. See, Christ told us while he was here, he said that, hey, the world is going to hate you. And it's not necessarily because of anything that you're doing. They are going to hate you because they hate me. When the world unleashes its darkness on the people of God, the people of God turn to the Lord in faith, and they pray for a boldness that goes beyond any human understanding. And this is what Nehemiah does in verses 4 through 5. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where, where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Notice what Nehemiah says at the beginning and notice also something that he says at the end. He says that it is the people of God that are despised, but it is the Lord that has been provoked to anger. And why is this? It's because the crime is against the Lord himself. See, one of the greatest encouragements that we can have in this life is knowing that there is a time set in eternity where God is going to look at the state of his work. He's going to look at his people. He's going to look at the wickedness of man, and he's going to say, now is enough. The time has been reached. No more bloodshed. No more tears fallen. I'm coming to complete this work. It's set in eternity. I'm looking forward to that day. So you see, if you're a follower of Christ, the worst thing that man can do is kill you. That's the worst thing that can possibly happen to you. And once you die, that's when life really begins, right? I've told the students that our entire lives really is like the Super Bowl, where from age zero to 100, you're just in the pregame tunnel. And you don't get to the good stuff until you run out there, right? That's what eternity in heaven's like. Right now, we're in this small little moment of just, it's coming, it's coming, it's almost here. You're like Benji waiting for trick-or-treating tonight. You're like, it's, it's coming here. I got my costume ready. I'm ready to go. It's going to be here soon. And then when it, it finally gets here. And that's the eternity that we will get to be with the Lord forever. So yes, the people of God are despised because the Lord is despised. But remember, our war is not with flesh and blood. Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The very struggle that we have as the people of God is against the devil himself. Understand this, Satan would not pit the world against the church if the church was not a threat to his kingdom. Why would he? We're already outside in our, in our sins. We're sons of disobedience. We're sons of the devil. Why would he get in our way if we're just doing what he wants us to do anyway? He will only mess with you to an extreme when we are following the Lord because he knows that we are building a kingdom that cannot be torn down. Now understand, if we had to rely on our own strength, our own resources to stand against Satan's kingdom, we would not stand a chance. We would be like the Israelite wall that would tumble down at the moment a little fox walks onto it. But just like Nehemiah, our confidence is in the Lord our God. See, he is the one that man has sinned against. He is the one that the crime has been committed against. And he himself will see to it that not a single one of his children falls from their faith. Calvin wrote that whatever happens, 
Let us march on with our heads upright, depending upon the help promised us from above, and we shall experience it in such a way that we shall go on invincibly. See, in the face of hostility, in the face of belittlement, is the people of God endure. I've often said that, you know, the greatest uh, revivals happen on the tail ends of severe persecution because the people of God endure. The soldiers of God, they march on because their eyes are set on their heavenly Father and their drooping heads are lifted by the comforting hands of Christ. So what is Nehemiah's response to this hostility? Look at verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. What did they do? They built the wall. The hearts and minds are set to do the work of the Lord. The people of God always do their best work in the face of opposition. I need to ask us, are we willing to dive this headlong into the mission of Christ? Yes, the words of man hurt, but we need to build the kingdom. You see, the Christian is the most rational person in the world because we understand that hostility is there. We, we're not going to live our lives as if, uh, hey, bombs aren't dropping over here and everything's going crazy. Like, we're, not, we're, not like, we're not living in la-la land. We know the state of the world, and that's why we're trying to do something about the state of the world. The threats of man are real. The pain that people inflict hurts, but I would rather deal with the blows of man than not give my very self on behalf of the gospel. Is your mind set on the work of Jesus Christ that he has given to us? Understand this. The world and the kingdom of the devil is against us. But so what? I think we're at this point where we're just so afraid of, of offending people that we just want to tiptoe around it and be like this little comfortable uh, little person that's just trying to please everybody. What's it matter if we please the world? The devil's against us. So what? We're building a kingdom that cannot be torn down. We're going to stand for one thing that is going to last forever. So I would say just let the devil come. Let him come on in and watch. Let him see what we're going to do. Now here's what's ironic. I'm a, what's, what is that Michael Scott said in the office? I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious. First service, I get to this. There we go. First service, you never thought you'd hear the office here. First service, we get to this point. You want to know what happens? My microphone dies. Next thing, the pulpit mic, already dead. Now, I'm not saying I'm superstitious, but maybe I'm a little stitious. Maybe the devil's already here. Cool, watch. Watch what we're going to talk about. Let him have that front row seat. Let him see a church devoted to truth and doctrinal integrity that's going to say, I'm going to stand for Christ no matter what you throw at me. Because if I'm not going to do it, who's going to say someone else is? We're standing for something that's going to last forever. We're going to let the world watch as the Lord builds his kingdom. And God forbid that any one of us stands back and is passive as he does it. We work despite the opposition of the world. In verses 7 through 8, we see that these snide comments turn to open rage. And I'm not going to read it all, uh, but it says that they became very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. The greater the threat to Satan's work, the greater his rage toward us will be. See, if Satan cannot beat a Christian with doubt, he may do it by brute force. What is the greatest weapon that we have against the devil? Prayer and communion with our Heavenly Father and the relationship we have with the church. Nehemiah shows this in verses 9 through 10. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is, is failing. There is too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. I see, I, I'm thankful for these verses because I think one of the greatest lies that Christians tell themselves is that they're capable of doing this all on their own. I think that if we uh, go in with that mindset, we are uh, not prepared for what the world has to throw at us. 
I shared this the last time I preached. You need the church. There's not a single person in here who does not need the church. And so uh, William Carey, he was the father of modern missions. He told Andrew Fuller that he would go into the mine as long as someone was there to hold the rope. He would go on missions as long as he knew that there was someone there to support him. You see, in Nehemiah 4, we see this admission that we all have to make, that we cannot do this on our own. It really is. I'll quote Finding Nemo, too, because this is the second service. Remember in Finding Nemo, Marlon says, you think you can do these things, but you just can't, huh, Nemo? Yeah, it's not as good as the office. That's fine. We need a life-saving, life-preserving connection to our Father and with the church. Look at verses 11 through 12. And our enemies said that, they will, that they, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. See, by now it's plain that the world is going to stand against the work of God. But verse 12 presents this heartbreaking development where we see Jews telling Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem to abandon the work. Now, we as Christians, we know that the world is going to stand against us, but isn't it a thousand times worse when our fellow Christians stand against us? How discouraged did Nehemiah and the people feel when their fellow descendants of Abraham said to them, guys, this looks like this is going to fail. You might as well come home. Why are you even trying? Like, it's a good effort, just come home. And they don't just do it once. We see that they, ten times they come and tell Nehemiah this. The biggest threat to the advancement of the church always comes from the inside. The biggest threat to the church is when growing Christians are uh, being torn down by other Christians. One of the biggest threats to the church is weak men, weak women, and weak ministers that care only about making church look appealing, appetizing, and falter at the first sign of trouble. If you're not building up men and women in the church, and you're only sowing discord and tearing others down, the thing is, you're not working to please your Heavenly Father. Like, if all you are doing, like all, all, if your biggest joy is complaining about what someone else is doing, instead of building them up to holiness and righteousness, then you're not doing church right. You see, we're called uh, to uh, preserve truth. Calvin, he argued that peace is not to be purchased by the sacrifice of truth. We're doing Christians a disservice if we're not willing to call them to repentance, to holiness, and to godly living. The reality is, far too many Christians are keeping their mouths open when they should be shut, and far too many are keeping them shut when they should be open. Harsh truth, but we need it. What are we doing to build up the church? What are we doing to build up our brothers and sisters in the faith? And I think as we get into verses 13 through 15, we start to see the spirit of the Reformation uh, that the reformers had. Nehemiah, he writes, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. See, what Nehemiah told his people is the same thing that we need to hear today. We have no reason to fear the world. We Christians, we should be the happiest people in the world because we have the only hope that's not going to fade away. The world's going to offer you a lot of great things, but guess what? Either that treasure will die or you will. We are a part of something that will last forever. See, the heart of the Reformation came because Luther and others remembered the Lord. They remembered what he had done, they remembered what he was doing, and they saw ahead to what he was going to accomplish. 
They knew that he was great, that he was awesome. This pushed them to fight for their brothers and sisters in the faith. Christians, we do not have to fear the world anymore. See, when you are near sins, you want to know what your greatest joy is? Pleasing the world. But you don't have to do that anymore. The thing you were afraid of the most was, oh, I hope I don't disappoint them. I hope that I do what I'm supposed to do, that I'm a good little worker bee. But the reality of the cross is that if we are united to Christ, the greatest battle in our lives have already been overcome. You've been brought from death to life through the resurrection of Christ. And so we can shout from the rooftops of the jail cell, even in the grave, the same thing that Paul says in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What we see in Nehemiah 4.15 is that God frustrates the plans of men so that the people of God can see to it that the work of the Lord is done. Leave the threats to the Lord. Vengeance is in his hand. You do the work that he has called you to do. If God is for the things that we are doing, what does it matter then if man is against us? Like really, what does it matter? You're here to please one person and one person only, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what the world's telling you. If you want to, here's the thing, I stopped watching the news like a year ago. Like if you want to be a significantly happier person, just turn off the news. You know from the word of God that the world's just a mess. You don't need CNN or Fox telling you, hey, it's even more of a mess than what you think. It's already pretty rough. You are here to please the Lord your God. So how do we apply this? Verses 16 through 20 of Nehemiah. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. You see, here's the sword and the trowel that people think of in Nehemiah when they look at the book. In these verses, we see the two hands of the Christian. In the one hand, we hold our sword. See, we're not just ready to argue for the truth. We're ready to defend and be killed on behalf of this truth. We're not going to roll over. We know the word of the Lord. We're going to stand for the Lord our God, and we're willing to hold fast to our confession. We hold fast to the word of God. You see, I told the kids before that here's the thing. The Bible is not difficult to understand, but its truths are hard for you to swallow. That's the reality of the Bible. It is telling you the truth, but do you want to hear it? Probably not. Because your hearts, if you are not in Christ, are set on the kingdom of darkness. But with the sword in your hand, you're ready to die for those truths. Are we willing to stand for truth in this age that seems to be so adamant against it? But that's not all we're here to do. In our other hand, we have that trial for building up. We have made it our goal to love our fellow Christian, to present them as mature in Christ. We give them our all, because Christ gave us his very self. See, Spurgeon, he once published a magazine, and he called it The Sword and Trowel. And it was him, this was this Nehemiah 4. This was the intention he had behind his work. He said, our chief aim will be to arouse believers to action and to suggest to them plans by which the kingdom of Jesus may be extended. To widen the bounds of Zion and gather together the outcasts of Israel is our heart's desire. We would sound the trumpet and lead our comrades to the fight. 
We would ply the trowel with untiring hand for the building up of Jerusalem's dilapidated walls and wield the sword with vigor and valor against the enemies of the truth. See, all Christians are to have two hands, one for building the kingdom and one for fighting for it. The work is vast, but it is a work that must be done. So Christian, I hope I can see in your hands the sword by your side that's ready to stand for the integrity of the gospel, for the truth of the word of God. And then in your other hand, you have your trial that's ready to comfort and support and build the church of Christ. See, a man that is not ready to build up for Christ and fight on behalf of Christ will not be prepared to be a faithful witness. And it might sound overwhelming, but we remember this truth. Our God will fight for us. Today, what we are all hearing is the uh, battle cry, the trumpet sound of Nehemiah 4, that we're going to rally on this spot. We're going to come together on the word of God, and we are here so that we can defend the gospel above all else. Today is the sound, and if you're not going to rally to it, you only have two options. You can either build up your own kingdom or God himself will tear it down. There's no middle. No, if you choose to stand against the church, against Christ and his work, then God himself fights on behalf of his people. And if the gates of hell cannot stand against it, what makes you think that you can? That's the reality of the world that you're in. You're either tearing down your kingdom or God will build, or, you, know, you tear down your kingdom and Christ will build his always. The Christian is to be a warrior. Now, this doesn't mean we go out to people and say, hey, if you're not going to accept the gospel, I'm going to kick you in the teeth. Unless it works. It doesn't. But it, if it does, it doesn't. That's not what this means. What this means is we're willing to go to our graves because we hold these truths to be so important to our lives, that Christ is at the very epicenter of all that we do. He is what the universe revolves around, and believe it or not, it's not you. You are not the most important person in the world. I'm not the most important person in the world. But if Christ were to be gone for a millisecond, there would be nothing. We always have our hands busy with the work of following our Savior. We always have the sword nearby to fight for the integrity and truth of the gospel. If you want to be a faithful follower of Christ, you have to be ready with both sword and trowel. I'm going to finish up with this, verses 21 to 23. Y'all did really good. You got through a whole chapter of the Bible. Teens and NYC, they can learn from this. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Here we see the men of God, the women of God prepared to fight. Ready or not, the work of the Lord is going to go on. It'll either go with you or it will go on without you. So what we see in these verses is that when one person rests, another takes his place, and on and on and on the work goes. You know very well that the world has not slowed down its attack on the people of God. You don't have to look very far to see that the world hates us as the church. And it's going to be like that. It's not going to change. So we get used to it. The world's not slowing down it's assault on the kingdom of God. So we should not slow down the fight that we are making for his kingdom. Now, the work seems hard. It might seem overwhelming. And, but the greatest reminder is this. is what we've already looked over today. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. He is the one that fights for us. The greatest 
uh, encouragement that, that any pastor has is knowing that the work of Christ does not start and end with him. The work of Christ is always beginning, middle, and end, God alone. And we are lucky to play a part in it. I know very well that God could send anyone else and they could do a better job at presenting the gospel than I could. And yet in his grace, which we've already sung about this morning, is he chooses to use us. God has chosen to use you. You are still here. That means there is some part in his plan that you still need to fulfill. There is not, he has not called you home yet. There is still work to be done. He's building up the kingdom. He's choosing us to do it. So we need to be faithful and do the work of the Lord that he has given to us. And we remember that work which the Lord has given us to do, that he himself will see to it that it is completed. You see, I am looking forward to the day, and I hope it happens when I will hear, good job, good and faithful servant. You built the wall. You stood for truth. You fought for truth. You were willing to go to any, any sort of pain or torture for this truth. Understand that this is not just offered to to the air. This is offered to us that we would one day hear the Lord say those words to us. I'm hoping that we are all there when that day comes, or we can say, Father, we did what we could. When one of us got tired, another one was there to back us up. When, uh, when the truth was being attacked, we had our sword ready. We were ready to go. And that's what the world needs. We don't need passivity. We don't need just acceptance of values. We need that assault on the kingdom of darkness because we know that the Lord is coming soon. Let's go to him in prayer, and then we're going to continue to worship together. Father, we know that you are doing a work. We know that this is your world, that everything is being done for your glory. I thank you that, that you have given the church so that we could play a part in building your kingdom. I pray that as we leave here today, that we're going out with our sword in one hand and our trial in the other, ready to defend and to build, because we know that you are awesome and you are great. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.